you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wonderful to be with you this morning, City on a Hill. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, uh, my name is Guy, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to serve uh, as the pastor of City on a Hill, a church committed to knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians today, but before we dive in, I wanted to share with you uh, an exciting announcement for our church here in Melbourne. Some years ago, uh, we uh, set our heart on seeking the Lord and His vision for our 
church. We believe this is Jesus' church, and we always want to be dependent upon Jesus and where Jesus wants to have us as his community. And part of that process was called Reimagine, and we journeyed together as a church. One of the key priorities that we really felt God calling us to was an investment uh, in the next generation, uh, investing in, in, in youth and, and students here at City on a Hill. Uh, by show of hands, who, uh, who uh, became a Christian before their 18th birthday? Okay, have a look around and you'll see what a significant area of ministry this is for God's church. And so we've been praying about how we might invest in that space and then specifically who the Lord would raise up uh, to lead our ministry to youth and students. And, and I've got to share with you that, that it was difficult to find the right person. Uh, we were looking near and far and really felt that we were kind of just coming up empty. Uh, you'll know that our last year, Ben, uh, who came on as part of our planting residency, took on the portfolio to lead our young people and did a fantastic job, but we always knew that that would be a 12-month gig as he prepares to plant in, in Ballarat. So again, we were out there looking and searching and seeking the right leader, but again and again, kind of coming up empty. Well, earlier this year, um, I received a message from Alice Arnott, who's on our staff team, uh, works with me, and she was part of the prayer team. And uh, someone in the prayer team had sent her a message or said to her, I feel like God is going to raise up someone from within this church uh, to take on that ministry. Uh, and that was curious to me. Two weeks later, uh, I, received, I received a phone call. I was at McDonald's at the time, doing some hard prep for a sermon, and uh, I received a phone call from Stephanie Judd. And Steph had called me and said that she had felt that God had laid on her heart a desire uh, to lead and serve with our young people, with our youth and our students. And I must confess, it surprised me. It was not what I saw coming. Uh, but as I talked with Steph, as Steph and I talked with the team, the staff and a whole bunch of others, really felt that this was an amazing, uh, I guess, move of God. Uh, really felt that God's hand was on Steph's life and on this ministry. And so really excited uh, for a new chapter uh, for Steph, but also a new chapter for us here at City on Hill. So with that in mind, can we thank the Lord and actually welcome on up Steph again. Thank you. Now, Steph uh, serves as Director of Ministry. We have three directors here at City on a Hill, uh, Ministry, Discipleship, Operations. Steph is Director of Ministry, which includes a whole host of things with services and a whole bunch of different things. And you continue in some sense with that. You've got a team there that you lead, but you're taking on this new uh, area of ministry. Tell us why young people uh, matter and, and why they matter to God and why they matter to you. Mm. Uh, well, like it looks like, like many people in this room, my life really changed when mm. I was 17 years old. And um, thanks be to God uh, for this beautiful Bible study group of teenage girls that uh, you know, I joined, came along, and a, a Bible study leader was there and explained the gospel to me for the first time. You know, I sort of thought, hmm. why has no one told me this before? And was so thankful for an incredible, I was a, a beneficiary, really, of an amazing youth group. And it was in those first six months of being in then a youth group um, that all the foundations, really, of my discipleship were laid. How to handle the Bible. I'd never read the Bible on my own before. Um, how to try and interpret it and try to be on mission, how to pray, what that looked like, understanding who Jesus was. Um, and in the years after that, uh, I really uh, I thank God for incredible uh, youth 
ministers and other youth leaders who invited me to, you know, be, be preaching to our youth group, taught me how to preach. I'd been a Christian for like two minutes, but they're like, yeah, have a go. We'll help you out in that. We'll help you how to, you know, write a Bible study. And so I, I look back and I look on my journey um, and I very much see those early years of youth and then of kind of young adulthood as well. So much of the foundation of my mm. own discipleship, my relationship with Jesus and my leadership journey. And so um, I thank God for that. Um, and I'd love to see many, many young people mm. know who they are in Jesus, uh, know how beautiful and true and relevant the word is for their life. The world is pulling everyone, but especially young people, every other direction than Jesus. The only people that are going to call our young people to Jesus is the church. And so we have to be all in in this area. I'm mm. really convinced of that. I've been saddened to see, like, struggle to find leaders in this space. Um, and I, I want to play my part with a goal to really see young people uh, raised up in Jesus, discipled richly in Christ, um, to work out how to do that as a church. You know, we've got a unique kind of infrastructure here at City on Hill, um, being a city church, work out how, how we can do that in a mm. deep and sustainable way. Um, continuing, you know, the great work that Deb does all the way through kids and continuing that through through youth and through uni ministry. And also to work over the next, you know, four years, really, to, to raise up leaders in this space who can own it and drive it forward in the, the years ahead. And not only this space, but to see this space as such a significant way in which um, our, you know, future of our church and future leaders will be discipled and raised up in leadership uh, and Lord willing, you know, serving our church and, and Jesus' mission in, in a whole host of ways. So that's my vision and I'd love to, yeah, excited to play a part in it. Awesome, Steph. Well, we would love to partner with you in, in our prayer. Uh, also in terms of leadership, I know there's already some great leaders involved yes. in youth. You're already talking with other leaders, but perhaps you're here today and, and God is pressing on your heart that this is an area where you could shine a light for the gospel and no doubt they can talk to you yes. uh, about that. Why don't we um, pray together and just to honor God in, in this moment. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the young people that you love so passionately, that you sent Jesus for. And we do pray, Lord God, that we would see many young people come to know the beauty, the truth, and the relevance of Jesus. Uh, I thank you for Steph's uh, courage and her leadership. Uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, you had moved in her heart and, and given her a vision. Uh, thank you for the gifts that you've given her. Thank you for the people that you've surrounded her with. Uh, and I do pray that you would anoint this ministry, Lord. Uh, give her all that she needs to do the work that you have called her to do. Raise up a great team that would be passionate about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. We need you, Lord. Without you, we have nothing. With you, we have everything. Uh, and so we honor you and, and, and look forward, Lord, to seeing how you will work through this new and exciting chapter for our church. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said. Amen. 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 Let's thank the Lord for Steph and this new chapter. Well, if you've got a Bible handy, let me encourage you now to go and grab it and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, one of the things, if you've been at City on Hill for, I don't know, more than three minutes, uh, you would have heard me say that uh, Jesus is not only true news, he is 
good news. Jesus is true, not only true news, he is good news of great joy. So when we say that Jesus is true, we're saying that Jesus is real. Uh, he's historical. He's not uh, a cartoon character, not a myth, not a legend. Uh, no, uh, the, the life, teaching, and miracles of Jesus are recorded in the Bible, uh, surveyed throughout history, verified by scholars and seekers and skeptics alike. Jesus is, is true news, but he's more than true. Do you remember what the uh, angel said to the shepherds that first Christmas night? Behold, uh, we bring good news of great joy. In other words, Jesus is not just a historical figure. When Jesus entered the stage of human history, get this, a light of profound love, profound joy, profound meaning broke into our world. And, and, and many of you here today know that good news. You have experienced it firsthand. Others are here today or joining us online and, and you're exploring this good news. And we're so welcome, uh, so encouraged that you're here. We hope you feel welcome in this community to explore the truth of Jesus and the good news of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, the one who penned the letter that we're exploring together, uh, he himself had a profound experience with Jesus. Uh, he, he once persecuted Christians, a devout Jew. He was kind of set aside as a persecutor of the early church. And yet his life was radically transformed on a road to Damascus where he himself encountered Jesus. He encountered Jesus. And in that mo moment, he discovered that Jesus is true but he also discovered that Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. Why is Jesus good news? Why is there such a big deal about Jesus? Why do we sing songs to Jesus, welcome people to Jesus, preach, pray, give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus? And today we're going to explore this together in our text. And we're going to see three things about Jesus and his good news. You're going to see that Jesus, he brings righteousness in the face of condemnation. You're going to see that he brings uh, boldness in the face of fear. And we're going to see that Jesus brings transformation in the face of death. So first, let's, let's jump straight in and, and talk about righteousness in the face of guilt. Righteousness in the face of guilt. So verse 4, Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul is eager to show the church in Corinth, the first century church, that his confidence as a minister of this good news does not come from himself. His confidence isn't owing to his own personal resume or his uh, spiritual gifts. It's not owing to uh, his, his religious record or his ministry experience, his confidence is anchored in the person and work of Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who lived. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who rose again, bringing salvation to all who believe. And it is this Jesus who is central in his life and ministry. It is this Jesus who is central in the life of this church. We are about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And as Paul says in verse 4, you can see it there, it is God who commissioned Paul and Timothy and set them apart to be ministers of the new covenant. Right? They're ministers of the new covenant. Now, in the first century, particularly in a Jewish culture, anyone who would hear that word covenant would immediately think back to the covenant that God himself established with his people Israel. God made a covenant with Israel, a bit like a a husband and wife on their, their wedding day, exchanging vows, making a commitment to love and, and cherish one another. So God and Israel made vows that they would now be one. And as is the case with any marriage, the covenant in the Old Testament was built on faithfulness, forsaking all others, no other gods, trust you walk with you, listen to you, obey your commands. This was the law that you can read about. This was the covenant that God established with Israel. And yet what happened? What does every book of the Old Testament reveal about humanity when it comes to their ongoing commitment and obedience to God? Put simply, we suck. That's what it tells you. Uh, that's pretty much it. I've studied the Bible now for nearly 20 years. And if you want to summarize the entire Old Testament, here it is. Wait for it. God is good. We suck. That's what it boils down to. We don't keep the commands. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as we are supposed to love them. We don't care for the environment and the way we are called to steward. Yes, we have a few shining moments. Yes, of course, humanity is capable of doing great good. But time and time again, and we read this in the Bible, we discover that all falls short of the glory of God. God. In fact, in Romans, Paul will say there is no one who is righteous, not even one, not even one. We all fall short. We can't fulfill it. And this is the religion, the worldview that the apostle Paul was raised in. Right. So uh, he was before meeting Christ. He was a religious leader from a select group known as the Brotherhood. Uh, We'd know them also as the Pharisees, but in the first century, they were known as the Brotherhood. Very select group. Only a select number of men could get in, and it was based on your absolute commitment to obey the law. You memorized it, you taught it, and you obeyed it, and you worked incredibly hard to tick every box, believing that by keeping the law, by ticking every box, by running that religious treadmill, the world, yourself, your relationship with God could be made right. If I tick these boxes, if I do everything perfectly, then I will be made 
right. And maybe you're here today and you have found yourself on that treadmill. Maybe you were raised in a home where you were told that if you have to keep every command, you have to follow every single law, you have to do this and don't do that, and if you do this and don't do that, then you'll be right. That's how you'll be secure. But what does Paul discover? He says it here. He says, for the letter kills. It kills. Very strong, vivid language, isn't it? And look at how he fleshes this out some more. Verse 7. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Uh, what does, Paul, what does Paul mean when he, when he talks about the law of Moses as a ministry of death? Why does he say the letter kills? Very strong language. What does he mean by that? Uh, it doesn't mean that God's word is flawed. Uh, it's not because the commands themselves are wrong or that the law of Moses is somehow evil. That's not what he's saying. It's because we have a sinful nature that is bent away from God. By nature and choice, we do things that we should not do, and we fail to do things that we should do. The law itself is not flawed, But in our sinful nature, we can't fulfill the law. We don't keep the commands. There is no one who is righteous, no one who seeks after God. We don't do what we ought to do. By nature and choice, hear this, we disobey God's word. We don't love him as we ought. We don't love our neighbor as we ought. If the law was a ladder going up to heaven, you can spend your days trying to climb that ladder, you won't reach heaven. We all fall short, the Bible says. And as such, we are, what's that word? Condemned by the law. The law is like a mirror with a fluorescent light. It exposes you. You can, do, you can do good things with bad intentions. You can do bad things with good intentions. We are constantly falling short, and the mirror of the law exposes that. That, that was true in the days of Paul, but you know, it's also true today. Uh, we're not, oh, we may be living in a secular uh, society, but that doesn't mean we are free from our own laws that govern who is right and who is good. Uh, I've shared this quote before, but it's a great quote from the TV show The Good Place. In The Good Place, a godlike being named Michael, played by Ted Danson, is confused by the fact that for centuries, no one on earth has accumulated enough good points to avoid eternal anguish in the bad place. He says this, life is now so complicated, it's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. 
These days, just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you're unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labour, contributing to global warming. Humans think they are making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices. They don't know what they are making. You hear what he's saying? Every day, you and I, we are making dozens of decisions, and whether you like it or not, we are racking up guilt. Whether we're talking about a tomato and the needs of global warming, whether we're talking about racism and the injustices that we've all contributed to, whether we're talking about our own affluence and the needs of the the poor and the marginalised, there is an infinite number of choices we face every single day, and if you just stop long enough to consider the choices that you make, you will see that you don't measure up. You do things you shouldn't do. We all fail to do things we ought to do. In other words, we all fall short of the good place. But this is why we should all pause and consider Jesus and who Jesus is and why Jesus came and what he is offering you today. In contrast to the condemnation of the law, what does Paul say? He has discovered the glory of God's righteousness. He says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, whenever the Bible speaks about righteousness, it's often talking about the character of God, that God is by nature righteous. Unlike us, he never does evil. He never acts unfairly or treats us unjustly. He's always loving, always good, always right in what he thinks, feels, and does. And yet when Paul talks about the ministry of righteousness, he is not talking primarily at this point about the character of God, but a gift that comes from God. Specifically, he's talking about the gift of justification where God chooses to pardon guilty sinners and credit them with a perfect record. For those of us who are putting our trust in Jesus, God now sees us with the same innocence, the same affection, the same love with which he sees his own son. By faith, Jesus' love is now your love. His truth is your truth. His purity, his beauty is yours. Do you know how incredible that is? Do you know what that means for those of us who have sinned? For those of us who know we've made mistakes. For those of us who know we've made poor decisions, that we've stuffed up. Do you know what that means for those of us who feel shut out? I was watching a um, story on the project, kind of... Current affairs? Is it current affairs? I don't know. What is it? Talk back? Talking. They're just talking, basically. And uh, they had a feature interview with, um, I want to get his, George Calambaris. Is that right? I'm saying it right? Yeah. 
Who knows George Kalambaris? A few hands. If you're right, Master Chef, Greek Master Chef, great cook, great chef, uh, hugely popular. I think he started when he was like 18. Uh, heaps of you know really well-known uh, restaurants. Um, very popular on the TV show Master Chef. Well, in 2019, he was embroiled in a scandal that involved underpayment of wages to his employees. $7.8 million worth of underpayment to his employees. This huge scandal broke out. Uh, He apologizes. Uh, He makes amendments uh, to repay, uh, arrangements to to repay the debt. Uh, But the scandal results in what? Public humiliation. Uh, He's off the show of MasterChef uh, and essentially just disappears. (laughs) And yet this interview on the project was looking at his life after MasterChef. After some years in the wilderness, he comes back. And he goes back to his roots and he starts cooking again. And he's working for a host of charities. And he's you know, back in the kitchen and he's trying to find his way back. He's trying to make himself right again. But immediately after this interview, it was like one of those kind of montage interviews where they, you know, immediately after the, the video interview was played, the host of the project turns to his colleagues. And you know what he says? Really interesting. He says, I don't know how the process of uncancelling works, whether it's even possible. Um, that's not George saying that, that's the host. Uh, Another member of the panel says, I feel the idea of cancelling doesn't leave an opportunity to move on and do something better with their life. Let me say that again. I don't know how the process of uncancelling works, whether it's even possible. I feel the idea of cancelling doesn't leave an opportunity to move on and do something better with their life. So this is the world you are living in. We are all just one failed step one failed tweet, one failed choice, one failed decision away from being cancelled, which is the postmodern word for condemned. And the world has no answer for it. The world doesn't know how to bring someone back from that. The world has no answer for uncancelling. It has no answer to make things right. You want to know why we speak of Jesus as good news? Listen, Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills it. He walks in truth where I stumble in deceit. He walks in love where I fall to indifference. He walks in perfect obedience where I fail to obey. And not only does Jesus live the life that we could not live, he dies the death that we should have died. In the Old Testament, Israel, to try and deal with their constant issue of guilt and condemnation, would take these pure, spotless lambs and they would offer it as a sacrifice on the altar and the priests would take it and they'd lay hands on it and they'd slaughter it and the blood would be spilled to try and atone for this sin, but their sins are ongoing. And so the sacrificial system kept going and it never appeased. It never satisfied. It never did what we needed most. And then Jesus walks on the stage of human history. And do you remember what John says? Behold, 
the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sins of the world. And on that cross, what does he say to you? What does he say to a guilty people? What does he say to the thieves, the drunks, the prostitutes, those who have failed? He says, it is finished. People think that when he said it is finished, he's talking about his life. He's breathing. He's like, no, 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 no. The sacrifice for your sins, the payment for your sins, it is finished. To all who have been condemned by the law, for all who have been cancelled by this culture, to all who feel that they have to work to prove themselves, to make themselves right in Jesus. Listen, you are free. In Jesus, you walk in innocence and freedom. In Jesus, you are, the Bible says, crowned with righteousness. You have his forgiveness. You have his honor. You have his love. Jesus is good news because he brings righteousness in the face of guilt. Second, the gospel is good news because Jesus brings boldness in the face of fear. Verse 12, one line. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. When you stand in the security of God's righteousness, when you stand in this hope, you are bold. No, strike that. You are very bold. Under the law, we're afraid of God. Under the law, we're, we're hiding or self-justifying. But in Jesus, you enjoy not just a forgiveness for sin, but an intimacy now with God. As the writer of Hebrews will say to you, we can now approach the throne of his grace with what? Boldness. Boldness. Think of the testimony of Martin Luther. I mean, this he's a wildcat. Uh, famous reformer. Luther was born in Germany in 1505. Uh, there's this moment where, like transformative moment, where he's caught in this thunderstorm. Lightning's going off. It's dark. It's scary. He's fearing for his life. And being a young Roman Catholic at the time, he cries out to his patron saint, save me, Saint Anne, and I'll become a monk. The storm subsides. Martin survives. And he makes good on his promise and becomes a monk. And few, few were as devoted as Luther. So very devoted. Daily disciplines, constant prayer. He actually, uh, it's recorded in history that he would sleep through the German winters without a blanket. Lashed his own back. Would sit in a confessional booth six hours a day. All to earn his place. In the good place. Luther himself said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But what happened? Despite his discipline, Luther confessed that nothing pacified his tormented conscience. 
He had a guilt that no amount of good work could take away. That is until he finds himself in the Bible meditating on this righteousness of God. I love these words. He says, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereby before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a, note those words, a gateway to heaven. You see what happened? Luther was reborn. Luther was taken through open doors. Luther entered a paradise where his dark and dusty view of God was now teeming with color and light. This is the boldness that you have in Jesus. The headline verse in our conference, Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The big question when it comes to your righteousness today is not how hard you're working or how disciplined you are. The big question is, are you in Jesus? If you are in Jesus, enjoy the love and kindness and intimacy of God. Don't live in fear. Don't spend your days beating yourself up over your past mistakes and sin. Enter into those gates. See the color that is yours in Christ. Let me encourage you to personally step into that today. I know it can be very easy to let your sin haunt you. I know how um, vocal our own flesh and the devil can be when it comes to our past mistakes and sins. There is a reason the Bible refers to the devil not only as a liar, but as an accuser. And I'm sure there are aspects of your life and your story that he wants to kind of wedge in and go after and press and press and press. And it can be tempting to condemn yourself in that. Let me encourage you to preach the good news to yourself. When you go to bed tonight and you sleep on that pillow, just take a moment to rest in the goodness of God's grace and his forgiveness, to know that God is with you, but even more, he is rejoicing over you, singing over you, delighting in you. He sees you as he sees his own son. Of course, the boldness that Paul speaks about in verse 12 is not just about his relationship with Jesus, but is also tied up with his ministry in the church. Paul knows, as I'm sure you know, that there were many trying to silence his preaching. Many who wanted him to run in fear. Because to the Greeks, the message of Jesus was foolish. To the Jewish, the message of Jesus was blasphemous. To the Romans, the message of Jesus was weakness. And so they were trying to silence him. And I know that you can relate to this because if you in your life have ever sought to be bold about Jesus in any form, I'm sure you've experienced some level of resistance. 
Yes, of course, some people are going to welcome that and hear it and receive it as good news. But for a lot of people, a lot of places, a lot of times we're going to find resistance. And that's especially true in a city like Melbourne. There was a time some decades ago where being a Christian uh, would have been an acknowledged and respectful part of your life. Uh, It's not to say that everybody went to church, but there was a certain understanding of the impact and good that Christianity has played in the formation of our culture. There was religious education in schools, prayers in parliament, leaders talking about their public faith, and that being something that most people would have admired and respected. But of course, you know, as I know, that those times have changed. It's challenging. You could lose friends. You may not get that promotion. You could lose that job. Being a Christian today comes with a cost. Being a Christian means you're going to face people who want to silence you and suppress the truth. And yet because of this hope, Paul says, we are very bold. (laughs) We are very bold. We speak the truth. We don't give in. You don't give up. You speak the truth of God's grace. You speak the truth of God's purpose. You speak the truth of God's love and kindness. A love and kindness that is available now to all people. We don't separate ourselves from culture. We don't demonize others in the world. No, we extend the hand of God's goodness and grace. We are bold in our faith. It's worth reflecting for just a moment how that boldness is evident in your life right now. What would it look like this week to live a bold faith? Is it an opportunity to share your faith with a friend? Is it a prompt to let other people know in the office that you go to church and are a Christian? Is there a boldness in reaching out to someone you know who is not a Christian with an intent to catch up for coffee and talk about faith and talk about Jesus, to share with them what is important to you? Is there a boldness in inviting somebody to church? Is there a boldness in being part of God's mission? We've already heard today, haven't we, about ways in which we're seeking to know Jesus and make Jesus known. We want to do this boldly. We need to do this together. And so already we've heard about ministry to young people. We've, we've heard about the welcome and host team. And these are all ways that we can each contribute to be bold in our faith. Christianity shouldn't be lived on the sidelines. It's not a solo sport. We're to do this together and we're to do it boldly because we have this faith in Jesus. Third and final point. Still with me? Awesome. The gospel is good news because it brings righteousness in the face of guilt, boldness in the face of fear. Third, transformation in the face of death. 
Love, love, love this section. Verse 17, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul understood that his role as a minister of the new covenant was to herald the gospel of Jesus. And already he's shown that in contrast to the law, the gospel is good news of God's immeasurable grace. Unlike the law, which leads to condemnation, Jesus brings a gift of righteousness. Unlike the law, which leads to fear and slavery, Jesus brings boldness and freedom. But here in verse 18, Paul goes a step further to show that the gospel changes us. Unlike the law, which because of our sin discourages and disappoints, the gospel transforms you from one degree of glory to another. It transforms you. You might want to underscore that word uh, in your uh, New Testament. It's actually a translation of the Greek word metamorphosis. Who's familiar with that word? Right? Metamorphosis. It speaks of a significant change that takes place, usually from uh, the inside out. There's actually a profound philosophical book uh, that really explores metamorphosis. It's by Eric Carle. Not sure if you've heard of it. It's called The Very Hungry Little, Little Caterpillar. How many of you remember this book as a kid? Such a cute little book. In the light of, I'm not going to do it with an accent. In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. One Sunday morning, the warm sun came up and pop, out of the egg came a little tiny and very hungry caterpillar. On the Monday, the little caterpillar eats an apple. It starts off reasonable. Tuesday, she ups it, two pears. Wednesday, three plums. Thursday, hey, close to the weekend, going to lash out at this point, four strawberries. Friday, five oranges. Saturday comes, maybe you need to park it, calm down. No, 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 cheat day in her household. She goes nuts. She has 24 cupcakes, 13 Zinger box meals, four apple pies, and a few pints of VB just to wash it all down. The next day she wakes up, and let's be honest, she's hating life. Oh, have you ever had like, like that junk hangover, eaten way too much, can barely move? She decides to build herself a little cocoon to hide away from the world. She lives in her house for two weeks, binging Netflix, ordering Uber Eats, tubs of ice cream, until eventually she decides to pop herself out, pop her head out, and give the real, real world another go. And when she emerges from her cocoon, what does she discover? She sees that she's no longer that small little caterpillar with that big, beautiful butterfly. What is Paul saying? <laughs> saying that the metamorphosis that takes place in the natural world is what can and does take place in the spiritual world. In Jesus, and by the power of the gospel, we're not only forgiven of our sin and given boldness in life, but are now transformed into something beautiful, something colorful. Don't miss this. 
Because a lot of people, when it comes to life and their purpose, think that their significance lies in what they have and in what they do. What do you got? What have you done? Right? These are the things that we anchor our identity and our purpose in. The world has so many symbols of success, but actually what is most important in life is not what you have or what you do, but who you are and who you are becoming to be. And we, City on a Hill, have this glorious promise that we are being fashioned now into the image and the likeness of Jesus. Your chief purpose... Your ultimate destiny is not merely to get a job, find a partner, settle down, retire, travel the world. No, your highest aim in life is to become like Jesus. That's the ultimate aim, to be like Jesus. So I love to read about Jesus, love to see how he engages with people, particularly those on the outside. You notice this about Jesus, so loving, so kind. The woman at the well, he doesn't judge her. He invites her, cares for her. Matthew, the tax collector, he's there to, to forgive him and show him that he's got a part and a place and a purpose. What is amazing is that the same spirit which is at work in Jesus is also at work in us, making us more and more like him. How many of you know that that is good news? It's good news. News. Listen, you might be here today or, or joining us online and, and perhaps you're feeling a little discouraged in your faith. Perhaps you feel like you're going nowhere. Please notice that Paul describes the process of transformation as going from one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory to another. It's a bit like the sun rising on a, on a day in Melbourne. It takes ages for it to heat up. It's one degree, one degree, right? The process of transformation, what does it tell you? It tells you it takes time. It takes patience. It takes commitment. It takes boldness. It takes what Eugene Peterson called long obedience in the same direction. We follow Jesus. And we don't just follow Jesus to receive his forgiveness, though that is incredible news. We follow Jesus to hear what life is ultimately about. We follow Jesus to see how does Jesus interact with people. We follow Jesus to see how he depended upon his father in prayer. We follow Jesus to see how he pushed back darkness and entered into light. We follow Jesus in the power of the Spirit to learn from Jesus and also to become like Jesus. By show of hands, who's been a believer longer than five years? A lot of hands. Keep your hands raised if you've been a believer longer than 10 years. All right, keep your hand raised if you've been a believer longer than 50 years. Hey, there's a few hands. 150 years. <laughs> Can we for a moment just thank the Lord for those who've been running the race? Because... 
I, I, I'm all for like people coming to new life in Jesus and the baptism stories are amazing. But how incredible it is that God continues to save, God continues to grow, God continues to mature people in Jesus through that long obedience in the same direction. Look, you could be a Christian here for a year or a hundred years. I want you to know God is at work in your life. His work didn't stop at your conversion. You are justified, but in Jesus, sanctified. We are being transformed. You are being changed, transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And that is God's work. Yes, there is our prayer. There is our disciplines. There's our reading our Bible. There's our coming to church. There's all of those things. But as Paul says, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. And you, listen, if you're honest, you have seen this firsthand. You have seen this in your own life. Some of you know that there were seasons in your life where you struggled with a particular sin. Some of you can look back to a previous time where perhaps you struggled with pornography. Perhaps you struggled with um, a toxic relationship. Uh, It could have been an area of unforgiveness. It could have been a matter of greed. It could have been a matter of lust. It could have been anything. And yet, what have you seen? You've seen through the power of Jesus, change. You have seen change. You are no longer held by that sin anymore. You're no longer held by that fear or that relationship. You feel different now. In fact, You are different now. God has changed you. And for those of you here today who are struggling to see progress, let me encourage you to not give up, to not give in. Trust Jesus. Go to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus because Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He gave you the faith in the instance, in the beginning, and he'll continue. And the good work that he starts in you, guess what? He's going to complete. I'm hungry for that. I look back on my life and I can see changes. I can see areas that I've learned. I can see uh, victory over certain sins and all of those kinds of things. I'm satisfied in God, but you know what? I'm hungry for more. Still can be very impatient. (laughs) Still can be distracted in my prayer. Still can be triggered by my own pride and long Long, long for that day that Jesus makes all things new. Long for that day where we all are flying and flourishing in him. He can change you. Do you know that? Some of you right now might be stuck in a cycle of sin or self-condemnation and you just think, I'm never going to... Listen, God can free you. God can change you. The Spirit is at work right now to transform you. He can give you the power to put that sin to death. He can strengthen you to be that person marked by forgiveness. He can empower you, embolden you, so that you're no longer that person who's held by fear. He transforms. And listen, when he transforms, it's beautiful. We'll finish with this quote as the band comes up. Love this one from C.S. Lewis. He says, imagine yourself as a living house 
God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. City on a Hill, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus, he brings righteousness in the face of guilt. Jesus brings boldness in the face of fear. And Jesus brings transformation in the face of death. Why don't we stand uh, as we continue uh, in our worship. Lord, thank you for your goodness. We need your gospel today. We need your power and your grace and your strength. And so like a rushing wind, would your spirit fill our souls and our hearts and our minds right now? Awaken us to the hope we have, the joy of Jesus and the new life we have in him. We love you, Lord. We pray that right now we could worship you with all that we have. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.